battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. He will be right back. Um... And we are now in overtime. We've been on the radio for a little while, um, but now we are proper. This is going to be in the overtime section of our podcast. And we are here with Joe Demanuel Hall from Labor Notes. Staff writer? Is that your position? Staff writer? Or organizer? I'm sorry. I had, um, I had Zoom muted on the OBS. Can you say that again? Yeah, staff writer, organizer, more on the organizer side these days. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And and so in overtime, you know, for folks that m- m- maybe I'm I'm not sure how much you know, Joe, about about the show, but we have a we have a radio half where we're on multiple radio stations. We're on a conservative radio station, we're on a black radio station, and we're on a community radio station. The first two in North Alabama, the, the third in New Orleans. And so this is more of a general audience. We just kind of catch people as they come. And so we kind of try to keep it higher level. We talk about the news more um, and, and, and higher level Unions 101 type stuff, right? But now um, our online audience, we're not on the radio right now. We're not going to be on the radio right now. And and so this audience is much more heavily union members, union activists, left-wingers, union supporters type folks. And just, I mean, we've got examples in the chat right now. We've got a, um, let's see, Jose is a backup shop steward at UPS Anaheim. Uh, Jeb was a union rep for several years at the Ironworkers uh, Local 477. Uh Pam Demonia, I'm an electric. Uh, I'm an electrician, um, it, presumably in the in the union. William Pina is another UPS Teamster union member. Think he's a shop steward. Um, uh, Jared Leggett is on the organizing committee for his union. You know all these and 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 of course the people that don't comment. So. This is so so we're kind of I'm not sure how colleges decide what to number their. Um, their courses, but we are now in kind of unions 102 or 201 type territory. And, and I wanted to spend a good amount of time on stewards because stewards are like probably the most important union office or one of the most important union offices, union positions that you can have. And whether it's called a steward or not, you know, some people, my union calls them assistant vice presidents, which I'm not a huge fan of. But, you know, it is it is what it is. I'm an assistant vice president of my union, and, and that basically makes me a steward. So so first, let's start with a 101 level definition of steward. What is a union steward, Joe? 
Sure, thank you. So a union steward, most basically, is the shop floor level representative of a union. And that can be called, like you said, in different unions, a lot of different things. Some unions call them delegates, some call them stewards, some call them assistant vice presidents, right? But the idea is that these are working representatives of the union. Stewards may get some amount, uh, small or large, of time away from the job to do the job of stewarding. But unlike many union presidents, maybe other union officers, business agents or union reps, whatever you call them, these people are people who spend the majority of their time doing the job. They're they're at work. This is mostly a volunteer role. Uh, though, like I said, there can be some small uh, perks or times away from the job that you get. But the idea is that these are the people who are day-to-day, shoulder-to-shoulder with their coworkers, seeing what's happening at work, talking with people. Uh, and for a lot of union members in the U.S., these are the face of the union, right? You, these are people who union members see every day, whereas you might only see a union officer every once in a while or never, right? Depending on your union. Um, and these are people who are also responsible for the day-to-day enforcement of contracts in unionized workplaces too. They're the ones who are watching out for contract violations or the ones who are in many cases dealing with the uh, low-level management or the early stages of a grievance procedure, depending on your union, maybe a lot further than the lower level of a grievance procedure, but doing things like investigating issues, uh, going at management with problems, informing their coworkers about stuff that's going on. Gotcha. And so then how does one become a union steward? That really depends uh, on your union. Unions handle it really differently. Some unions appoint their shop stewards. So you, you know, a, a local officer, a rep, a business agent, what have you, recognizes you and says, okay, that's you now. Uh, some unions hold elections for stewards and even for uh, backup stewards, right? Uh, UPS, like was mentioned earlier, there are a lot of positions for alternate stewards, particularly in big workplaces, right? Um, so that it, it really depends. But generally, if you're a workplace activist and you're interested in getting more involved in the union, showing up and being known to your coworkers as somebody who is knowledgeable about what goes on, who is interested in people's issues and is interested in trying to figure out people's issues is the best step, regardless of the actual structure, the constitutional structure, bylaw structure of how a steward is selected. That's... Yeah. Yeah, Jacob, I was going to jump in there on that because that was uh, that's been my experience in the education realm is, you know, whatever the Constitution and bylaws may say about elections, uh, the reality is that it was whoever was willing to do it, um, which means uh, very low barriers to entry if you're interested in getting involved. The flip side to it is that um, sometimes people became you know building reps as they were called in education by virtue of being willing to hand out a newsletter every now and then or um you know something very low level and they weren't really there to serve in that capacity um to address worker issues and and be an advocate for workers uh but yeah i i would say probably a lot of folks if you're listening 
chances are the barriers to entry are pretty low uh, because there's always a need for more people involved and willing to take take on a new role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening to find out how, how do you officially become one in your union? Uh, but on a practical level, it may be as simple as find out where to show up uh, or who to tell that you're interested. Right, right. Yeah, that that is because at, since Stewart is the lowest level office, that's going to be the one that is most often um, undone. They're most most often have open positions. And, and that was all it took my 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 local appoint stewards. And so basically all assistant vice presidents, um, <laughs> basically all it took is that uh, I showed up to meetings and I expressed an interest in participating in the union. Um, and then they were like, oh, well, you want me to go ahead and appoint you? And I was like, well, I'm still in my probationary period. Maybe we can wait a little bit. But um, so <laughs> don't want to don't want to put a target on my back while they can get rid of me for any literally any reason. Um, but I could have been a I could have been a, a, a steward and assistant vice president as soon as like three months in to working there. And that's, it is that, very, it's very easy to become a steward. That That's actually a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Jacob, because um, it's not to say that you can't be a steward or, or a rep, um, you know, when you're still very early in a position uh, in a, like a probationary period or non-tenured period, you know, certainly you can do that if it's something you're willing to do. But it may be wise to um, not have all of your stewards be non-tenured or probationary. Um, just something to consider. Um, I I was a you know a rep or steward uh, as a non-tenured teacher and and was happy to do that. But uh, I worked with folks who were more seasoned, and so depending mm-hmm. on the situation, we could kind of tag in, tag out. You know, depending on where our strengths were. Right, right. And and so what do you think, Joe, is and, and you basically run there you, you basically run the stewards program for labor notes, right? Can you talk to us about that before we go into more about some tips and tricks to being a good, good a good steward? Yeah, sure. So I certainly can't claim to have started it. You know, the one big resource that Labor Notes has had for the entirety or a big portion of the entirety of its now 43 year existence is uh, nuts and bolts resources for union activists, because in many unions, uh, you don't get much support, if any at all. Right. Some unions just say, great, you're a steward now. Maybe here's a button if you're lucky. Maybe there's steward training, maybe there's not, right? But in order to be an effective union activist, there's some amount of knowledge that you need to know. So something that we've done for a long time is put out articles that we call Stewards Corners that are monthly articles in our monthly magazine about both nuts and bolts and more organizing focused kind of resources for stewards, things to help people think about that. Uh, So those are still there. That's something that we do. We also now put out a series of books uh, by a really great labor attorney named Bob Schwartz, uh, including books like The Legal Rights of Union Stewards, books like that, um, that are available through Labor Notes, and that have for a long time been just like really the the Bibles of stewards' uh, rights. Uh, The one that I mentioned, The Legal Rights of Union Stewards, is just like there's nowhere else that you can find a book like that, really, I think, uh, that's as effective as that. More recently, in the last 
say year or so, we've been doing monthly online stewards workshops that are balancing again between those kind of nuts and bolts things and the more organizing kind of side, trying to mix them up a little bit. Uh, the idea being that really there are very few opportunities for stewards to interact with other stewards in different unions. If you're a steward and the Teamsters, there's not a lot of opportunity structurally within your union work to talk to uh, a building rep, right, from the mm -hmm. local teachers union, even in your same city, right? But there, we believe that there's a lot for these folks to learn from one another. So every month we get together, you know, dozens, sometimes over 100 stewards uh, to learn, talk, discuss about a topic, share their experiences. And it's, I, for me, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do. It, it, it is very, um, I, I've been to a few of those events. I love it. I, I like it a lot. I will say uh, that Robert Schwartz should make a book about the legal rights of union stewards in the public sector because um, that book is not very helpful to me. <laughs> so it's all related to private sector stuff. And I keep looking for public sector stuff, but it's it's nothing. So y'all are really letting me down. Um, but uh, I suppose some people could get some good out of it. There are at least as many public sectors as there are states, though, is part of the problem, right? And uh, plus the federal government, which makes it another challenge. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I do want to, um, I just want to promote those online trainings that Labor Notes is doing. Great stuff. Um, anyone listening, if you need more, uh, if you need actual like Q&A, if whatever, whatever kind of training you need, um, there's a good chance maybe your local or your union isn't providing it for you, but Labor Notes is out here kind of filling the gap. And so um, if you're not subscribed to Labor Notes, if you're not getting their emails in your inbox, that's like the easy thing I can ask you to do today for Labor Day weekend is subscribe to Labor Notes uh, so that you can not only get their fantastic articles, but you're, you know, in the loop for these training opportunities, which are usually free or very low cost. Um, and on that note, uh, notice we have not plugged it today. We need to plug that. Labor Notes is coming to Alabama October mm. 15th, the Alabama Troublemaker School. Um, we haven't mentioned that yet, but uh, we're going to keep plugging that over the next month and a half. I uh, hope to see some of our listeners there. Yeah. So, Joe, what do you think are some of the key general things that make a good union steward? It's a tough one. I think there are three main categories that I think about, and they're not always in equal balance, but those are being a watchdog. So somebody who's out there and really paying attention to the stuff that's going on, who's putting a magnifying glass to the decisions that management is making, um, who's keeping an ear to the ground about what people are talking to, both what people are actively bringing to a steward, but also like really going out there asking people questions, hunting down issues, not just waiting for things to come to them. I think an effective steward is also an enforcer. So we were talking earlier in the conversation about you know, the things that we want to get into a union contract, right? One thing that I used to tell the stewards that I worked with, because before I worked at Labor Notes, I was a rep, was that a contract that isn't enforced is just a piece of paper. And it's great to have that stuff in there, but there are 
contracts all across the United States that have great language in them that have never once been enforced or that mm -hmm. fall by the wayside all the time, right? And for all sorts of reasons. But one of the roles of a steward is to actually try and make those things happen and to try and expand them. That use it through the usage of grievance procedures that are in the contracts, through the usage of legal rights that they have, through organizing, to make sure that these things are not only in place, but that they grow and expand and that we win the most maximal version of those things that are in a contract and beyond, right? as well as the things that aren't in the contract. And the last piece of it, or one of the last pieces of it, I think, is the steward is also an organizer. The steward, it's very easy, uh, and it's often presented that the steward is like a workplace lawyer, mm. right? And that's, I mean, that is a job enough in itself, right? A steward could keep themselves busy just by smacking down grievances every time an issue happens, at least with workplaces that I've been in or worked with as a rep. But that to build a strong union, you need to get more members involved, and the people who are best situated to do that are people who are organizing in the workplace themselves, the stewards. Um, and that, you know, a, a president can't but alone organize, even a president of a small local can't effectively organize all of the members of the local, right? And that a network, a strong network of stewards who are actually going out and trying to get people involved is one of the best things that can happen to make a stronger union. And one of the uh, one of the ways that that you that that Labor Notes has suggested that stewards take on that organizing position is is through grievances. And there's a way there 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 is a way to do grievances in that workplace lawyer type way that that is very procedural that doesn't involve a lot of people. And then there's a way that doesn't do that, that involves lots of people, that galvanizes people around a grievance um, to make it more of a collective win as opposed to one worker being really smart and having good words that they can that they can say and that they can write right so and 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 I got that from uh, one of your stewards corner articles not sure who wrote it but uh labor notes does stewards corner articles that are basically like tips and tricks about how to be a steward and this one was organizing around a grievance or something like that can you talk to us about that article yeah sure so i think you know one of the complicating parts of this can be that not every grievance is going to be an issue that you're necessarily going to organize around, right? That uh, I'm really careful when I'm talking with people about it to not throw out this like technical or kind of grievance uh, more legalistic, you know, or like contract legalistic oriented piece of this. This is like a really important part of the job, right? There are going to be issues where one member comes to you with something and the way to handle it is you're going to work with that one member and you're going to file a grievance and you're going to investigate the hell out of it and you're going to make a really good argument and you're going to go through the process, right? I think part of what we're trying to talk with people about is that there are some issues that will come before a steward, before a rep, that will be opportunities to do more. And that almost all of these are an opportunity to do some amount more. And it's just a matter of how much, right? And so... Organizing around grievances, organizing in general, the idea for a steward is use every opportunity that you have to try and get more people involved in the work of the union, 
And that can be involving more coworkers in the investigation of a grievance, right? If somebody comes to you with a problem saying, hey, can you help me talk with some of your coworkers to see if anybody else has this problem too? It can be, you know, circulating a petition, can be getting people involved in marching on the boss around an issue. Uh, the idea really is, uh, and I'm going to steal something here from uh, an Amazon worker that I spoke with who was organizing in his workplace, said that his role was to collectivize everything. And I think that's kind of the idea, right, is to take every opportunity to get more people involved in this and to not make it about this one person who's making a really good argument for something. Um, so organizing around grievances looks different depending on the issue, but the idea is you want to find issues that can get a bunch of people involved. Uh, in labor notes, we use uh, the phrase widely felt and deeply felt to think about issues that you want to take on, right? There are issues that a bunch of people care about and that people care about deeply enough to actually do something about, because those things aren't necessarily the same. Generally, often uh, advise that people take on issues that are winnable, too. Sometimes you can take on a losing fight. Right? But if you're trying to build a winning team, people want to. People only want to take on the losing fight so many times. You want to have the hope of winning, and so trying to go out and find those issues and treating every issue that comes to you as an opportunity to say, "Hey, is this one of those things?" And many of them won't be right. But it could be something as simple as organizing organizing around a grievance. Could be something as simple as say. You find an issue that impacts more than one person in your workplace, as work rule issues often will, right? Instead of filing an individual grievance, you file a group grievance, right? And instead of just doing one of those class action grievances that says everybody in this title, you go around and you get everybody to sign the grievance who's affected by it, right? And you use the grievance as a petition. Uh, I read a great example. This is I'm going to self-reference here, uh, Stewart's Corner in Labor Notes, where one of the suggestions for doing that was on the back of the grievance form, having rather than a series of lines for people to sign something like the spokes of a wheel, which each spoke was a line for somebody to sign their name onto. And so it does this thing where it kind of equalizes the playing field, and it also lessens the fear aspect of somebody having their name be the first on a mm -hmm. list of names, right? Which is something that you can often experience in getting people to sign a petition. But turning in a grievance like that, right? Organizing around a grievance, getting people involved in the process and treating it as an educational opportunity with members around you to say, here, this is a violation of the contract. Did you know that the way that the management has been treating you is a violation of the contract? We have a contract. This is what we do about it right? Because you'd be surprised how many people in a unionized workplace don't know anything about the processes, right? They might have some faint idea. But being able to teach more people about this also ultimately helps the stewards work down the line, right? The more people you have out there keeping an eye out for contract violations, for wondering even if something that they experience is a contract violation, makes for a stronger union, what would you say, um, what can stewards do to, um, to build up a union that is, that is almost totally inactive? You know, there are unions across the country that, that are almost in name only, right? And, and 
so if there if there are people that are listening that you know and in and in unions like that if there's not some like weird corruption going on it's especially easy to just jump in and go to a meeting and 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 jump right in and do stuff how does somebody take the opportunity take that opportunity to become a steward and and create a union where theoretically you've got one, you've got a contract, you've won an election years ago, presumably, um, but but nobody is either everybody or is paper members or the the density is just crazy, crazy, crazy low. Um, and there and there may be even people that are working there that don't even know there's a union there. How can you become how can you as a steward build up? Uh, build up a sort of consciousness around around the union and around the rights that you've got. What are some of the first steps that you would start taking there? I think you got to start small, and starting small is having conversations with your coworkers about what's going on, introducing yourself to the people who you don't know, and talking with the people who do, and say, ask people questions about what's going on at work. You know, there's a, I think a, a tendency among really energetic union activists to to move to move fast to uh, and to assume that we know what the issues are that are going to mobilize people right you look at a situation and you say well that's obviously a problem let's go and fix that but I think that there's often a real benefit in taking a pause to say I got to figure out what people care about and we got to let people tell us what they care about and ask them to be involved, right? It can be something as simple as you have a conversation with somebody in a break room, they bring something up and say, hey, can we talk about this for a few minutes after work so I can understand the problem a little bit more? And all along the way, doing some education around, oh, you know, some flags in your head say, that's a contract violation. You know, did you know that we have a contract? Let's let's take it out and look at it together. You know that, that what's happening right now is a violation of the contract. We could think about doing something about it. Let's talk. And so it's really, I mean, in that situation, you're talking about reorganizing a workplace and really starting from scratch, right? You're trying to assess your coworkers. You're trying to identify what the issues are. You may already have a union, but unfortunately in our country, a lot of workplaces that are union are functionally unorganized. And the job of the steward is to reorganize them or further organize them, right? Make them stronger. And so it's really, it's almost going back to the beginning of the steps that we were hearing about earlier in this call, where people are talking about putting together an organizing committee, right? You want to go around and put together a crew of people who can work with you to go and reach more people, talk more people, identify what some of the issues are, start holding small, maybe informal union meetings during lunch breaks or after work, right? To get people to talk with one another about what the issues are and to not feel alone in those issues. Part of the responsibility of the steward is to present to people an alternative or a path out of the problems that they're facing. There, were, there are issues in every single workplace and you wanna present that, look, the, the union can be a vehicle for this if we make it one, but I need your help to do that. Absolutely. Adam, did you have anything that you wanted to ask him? Well, I was just going to give a couple real examples from my experience to sort of pull out what Joe's been describing with the, you know, deeply felt, widely felt sort of issues that can manifest in grievances. 
Um, I'm thinking of one example where I had a, a worker who was misclassified in her pay and she did a very unique job in the school system. It it was just a, I don't even think it was necessarily intentional to begin with. It was one of those just weird things that happens. And uh, unfortunately for her, it meant that she was being paid uh, thousands of dollars less than she really should have. Mm. Um, now that's a unique problem, right? And and so not many people could relate to that particular issue in the grievance. But where it did translate is that the only reason she was coming to me was because she'd been trying for uh, over a year to resolve it herself through the proper channels, quote unquote, mm. right? Um, this was not a worker who wanted to go file a grievance. Uh, she was very hesitant to file a grievance, but she had been, you know, she had pages of emails back and forth with payroll, with human resources, with her supervisor, with his, her supervisor, supervisor. That was an issue though that did resonate with members, right? Because even though you may have never had an issue with your pay scale, you probably have had issues with uh, poor communication with the central office, or you probably have had problems where you tried to resolve it without even uh, resorting to a grievance, uh, but you were stonewalled and you never had the opportunity to get it fixed right away. Um, and so that was something that, you know, I was able to talk to members about. Uh, and, you know, I'm proud that we won that grievance and she received a pretty hefty pay raise and some back pay. Um, and the thing that I asked her was like, okay, well, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about this, you should tell people like, Hey, I just want a major grievance. Like here's what we did. Uh, here's why that's a cool thing. Um, and it actually helped, um, bring several other people out of the woodwork who had similar pay misclassification issues. So it did help with some organizing and, and it did translate into some broader issues. Um, and also, you know, another example that comes to mind is when I had some issues with the librarians. And, you know, there's a librarian in every school. All of them were experiencing certain issues, but naturally there was only, you know, maybe two or three that were really vocal about it. Um but I was successful in getting those two or three vocal ones to get other people on board so that by the time we actually made it to the grievance step, um, it wasn't, you know, just the two people who were, you know, the, the complainers, so to speak, who were filing a grievance. It was about a dozen people filing the grievance. Um, and let me tell you, Central Office took that a lot more seriously than just, you know, the one or two. Um, because they were pretty shocked that there were that many people willing to sign their name to the grievance. Um, and just frankly, it was more physically impressive when I printed it all out. <laughs> uh, and sometimes those little tricks do make a difference. Like when I, you know, when I could put a big stack of papers there and say, Hey, here's 12 grievances and lay them all out there uh, mm. for human resources or, or whoever's on the other side of the table. Um, so I would say that if you're ever in a situation where there's a grievance uh, that needs to be filed, always do look and see, you know, like that Amazon worker was telling Joe, like, you know, is there a way to collectivize this? Am I the, really the only person with this grievance? Or are there other people who are impacted as well? 
Um, and even when there's not, even even if it is that you know individual case where you do kind of have to do the lawyeristic uh, approach, there's probably some kind of theme there, whether it's you know lack of response and communication from management to resolve an issue or um, you know whatever whatever the theme is that you can tease out that you can then uh, go back and share with other members. But, um, you know, so those were a couple of practical examples that I had in, in my experience. And, uh, you know, otherwise, just want to echo everything Joe said there. And I think um, I think y'all are right on with this issue that we have unions and workplaces, but that doesn't mean every workplace is organized necessarily. Not every union workplace is particularly organized, um, which presents both chair, uh, challenges and and opportunities, uh, right. so that I think that's why it's important that folks um, get involved. If they already have a union in their workplace, okay, well you already are like ahead of the game. So the opportunity there is to get involved, uh, read your stewards' corner from labor nodes, take these trainings, uh, so that you can be effective and get in there. And you know, next thing you know. You could really be shaking things up at your workplace and, and you could, you know, be the next leader of your union. Can I add a couple things that what Adam Go said ahead. anything? So one for sure, the you know, talking about the individual grievances and the wins, right? The way that the grievance structures from many unions are often set up, it's happening behind closed doors. And even if you do win, other members might not know about it. And there are going to be cases where you're not going to be able to bring those around, right? Where you're going to win something, you're not going to be able to put it in a newsletter, go around, do meetings and stuff. But take every opportunity that you can to do that kind of thing. I remember that uh, in, a, in my previous world, we won a disciplinary arbitration for a guy who got fired over some BS, right? And, you know, it it was complicated, but it was a win, right? And so... With this guy's permission, we went around and we took him around to have break room meetings at every one of the work locations to say, look, this is what happened. Mm. He won. Hear it from him, right? He, he went through this. He lost his job and he got it back. Um, and that was you know, a, a victory, right? That was an opportunity for people to hear about that and taking every chance that you can to do that, um, obviously with members' permission. But if you can, you know, these are these are folks who have a good reason to talk uh, a good game about the union and about what the union can do, right? Because it, it something just happened for them. Right. And I think, uh, second, talking about this, like, how can we use grievances more creatively? Uh, Adam's talking about this, like, stack of grievances thing. And imagine how much more effective a grievance hearing is when you have 5, 10, 15 people on your side of the table than when it's just you and an affected member and an HR manager and a, low, a low-level supervisor sitting across the table, right? Uh, one thing that we used to do sometimes was, uh, my last job, was that when there was an issue that people were feeling really fired off about, fired up about, rather than, you know, a lot of the time we would file grievances by, by email or by, you know, one person would hand them to a manager or leave them in a manager's mailbox or whatever. We would use them as an opportunity for a march on the boss, right? We would file... There was nothing in the in this contract that required group grievances uh, to be uh, consolidated, which some contracts would have. So it would mean that sometimes if a grievance affected 25 people, 
we would file 25 grievances around it and they would have mm-hmm. to have 25 hearings about it. And so we would use that. We would, you know, knock on their door. Five people would be standing at the door, hand them five grievances. Next day, knock on the door, mm-hmm. five different people standing there, handed them five different grievances, right? And just use the process kind of against itself. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't really about the grievance procedure. We didn't win those because of the strength of our arguments. We won those because we showed that a lot of members cared enough about this to do something about it. And it disrupted work, right? It, it ate up their time. It took time away from members for work. It just slowed things down a little bit. And so those kinds of opportunities to use the rights structures that we have, but use them not exactly in the way that they were intended when they were sitting down at the bargaining table and when management was envisioning what a grievance process would look like. Uh, on the on the first point too about getting people involved and talking about victories, I think another really important role of stewards here is being active communicators in the workplace. Right? That there's uh, there's often an attitude of unionists that like, if you care, you're going to come to the union meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Why does nobody come to the union meeting, right? Uh, that's where everything happens, right? But union meetings aren't always that interesting, for being honest, right? There's there's like a certain, some of them are great, but there's also a certain layer of people who go to them all the time. But Stewart can take that back to the membership, right? There's this great Labor Notes article by a former Teamster organizer that I think about all the time. It's called bring the union meeting to the members. That this is a role that stewards can do, right? You can hold meetings at the workplace. If you have coworkers who come up to you after the union meetings and ask you what happened at the union meeting, that means that maybe they couldn't come, but they're interested enough to know, right? right. If you're responding, oh, well, you should just come, that's a missed opportunity, right? And so you can bring that to the workplace and to your coworkers builds uh, respect, right? And it also brings people in to the process of this is what's happening at the union, even if you're not coming down to the union hall. And you can make sure that they're in a, at an important meeting when one happens. But in the meantime, they don't have to come to every single one to be involved or active, care about the union. I think yeah, that's that was huge. That was a very good article. And and it really, because uh, it, of course, of course, we can all fall into that because it can be frustrating when you are putting all this time and effort into something that's going to help these other people, right? And you're not doing it selfishly. It's not even necessarily going to help you. It's going to be helping these other people. And they don't even take the time to go to the damn meeting, right? That's really frustrating. But, uh, but if we're really going to be in this, not selfishly, then asking what happened at the meeting is actually like better than the people who aren't going and aren't asking. That's one step right. closer to being a union activist. And people don't, it, it's tough, it's tough, but that's definitely a better way to, to look at it. And, and it's accurate, too. Asking about the meeting is one step closer to being an active union member than the people who don't go and don't ask, right? And so that's, right. that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, you gotta, you got to yeah. meet people where they're at, and, right. and then you got to think about, Am I doing something that's going to bring them closer or push them farther mm-hmm. away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was. And the response of, "Well, you should just go to the damn meetings." Uh, it it may feel good to you in the moment to you know try to tell someone off that way, um, but that's not bringing them closer to the union or closer to attending the meeting. Um, whereas I think being willing to to report back every month 
here's what we talked about. Um, you know, whether it's uh, you hold your own meeting or you just do a, a brief email to members and be like, hey, I was mm -hmm. at the meeting this month. Here's what we did. Um, you be you may be surprised at who that actually resonates with, because um, oftentimes, you know, in those type of scenarios, the people that responded or the people that you know followed up were not the ones I expected. Uh, right. They were not necessarily the ones that uh, you know the rep would would normal normally associate as okay. Well, here's my next in line. Uh, they may throw you for a loop. Uh, but I thought Joe had some some great comments there, and there was one thing I was going to sort of uh, follow up on a little bit um, in terms of follow the procedure, know that procedure in and out. What is the company or school district or uh, you know factory, what it, whatever the workplace? What is the grievance procedure? What is the policy? What does the contract say? You need to know that, and you never want to lose on technicalities. Mm -hmm. um it, it kills your credibility and it just sucks uh to to lose on a on a technicality like a missed deadline or you didn't fill out the appropriate form or whatever it may be you never want to do that um but you know to build on what joe was describing you you have to be willing to be creative though uh so follow the procedure don't not follow the procedure but be willing to kind of go outside the box and think about things that you can do in addition to or, or things that you can do that's technically in compliance with the procedure, but maybe not what they expected. Um, you know, going back to the example of the librarian grievance, group grievance that we had, uh, just sitting here talking reminded me that not only did we do the multiple grievances, um, I, as a staffer, you know, was assisting them. It wasn't my grievance. I couldn't sign my name to them. I, I wasn't a librarian. But what I could do, you know, in addition to supporting them and, and making sure this happened, was I wrote my own letter uh, from me as the staffer to the superintendent, to the board. And they got that the same day they got the group grievances. And then I also filed an open records request mm. um, related to expenses in the budget about librarians right so they were getting hit from multiple angles and you know in no case could they argue that we didn't follow procedure or that we did something inappropriate it was all on the up and up uh but it was certainly unexpected uh they didn't expect to be getting hit from all angles and so that can also be uh you know something to consider when you when you're exploring tactics are there things you can do in conjunction with the grievance whether it's direct actions like marching on the boss or more of the you know legalistic type actions, filing records requests. Um, just you, you got to think about how how are you turning up the heat? Um, yeah. Because the more you're turning up the heat, uh, the more likely you are to get some sort of positive resolution. Um, because they can see where things would escalate if they don't resolve it. Yeah. Uh, but I think those those are some some great ideas. Joe, I appreciate your time. Joe Demanuel Hall, staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes, talking about stewards. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks. Uh, up next, we are going to be bringing on Chris, uh, who has put together a really cool 
research report about the finances of unions in the United States. Um, and we've got him, uh, we, we just, just got him online. Chris, can you hear us? I sure can. Fantastic. Awesome. So, uh, Chris Boehner, is that the way you pronounce your last name? Boehner. And uh, that wasn't so great in middle school, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, could... I survived, so I'm sticking with it. There you go. Oh, there yeah. you go. So you have your own, like, what, a consulting firm now called Radish Research? Is that is that what it is? Uh, firm might be a little strong, but, uh, I mean, I worked for labor as a staffer for like 25 years and, uh, and it's, it's me doing work for unions and, uh, other advocacy groups and my staff is, is me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Now, so you, you just came out with, with a report that, that has gotten a, a, a definitely some amount of attention in Jacobin and in, mm -hmm. in these times, Hamilton Nolan wrote about it, um, uh, talking about the finances of unions. And so, you know, the theme of the show today has just been kind of just straight union education. Yeah. And, I, and I think this is this is an important part of union activists understanding what's going on in our unions and what has been going on in our unions. Um and so if you could just go through the what is the top line top line findings from your report about the finances of the labor movement in the United States? I think the the top line and and what and sort of the surprise to me was um that even though labor has lost 2 million members over the last 20 years from a financial point of view, the assets have risen from something like 11 billion in 2000 to around 29 billion now. And so, you know, I think there was a perception and one I shared was that, geez, like this declining membership at some point, uh, unions are gonna go bankrupt. And certainly some of them are in financial distress and the union I worked for for many years, Unite Here was really, adversely impacted by the by the pandemic but the so the you know so there has been this huge growth in assets and i explore the the reasons why and kind of link it to some theories about what labor should or shouldn't do um but the other top line uh, sort of conclusion is that there's a lot of money available for organizing and other sort of supportive activities um out there in this in this moment that I think for people in my generation who've been working in the labor movement for two or three decades, we've, it's, we've never seen anything like this where the organizing conditions, the politics, um, the support for unions, the independent labor unions like at Amazon and Starbucks and new ones sprouting up every day. That, that is something that hasn't been seen for so long. And I think, you know, there's a critique of labor in my report, but it's also there's a huge opportunity. And like, I think that my my sort of um, call was like, let's now's the time to do it. Now's the time to spend the money um, the, because th there might not be another opportunity 
um, with some of the political changes that occur and changes in the economy. Right. And and just to put a number on that, you said, quote, in 2020, organized labor had uh, $29.1 billion in net assets. And that figure has almost doubled since 2010 as we have lost hundreds of thousands, millions of union members across the same time and our assets have almost doubled. How does that even happen? Well, uh, yeah. That, I mean, basically, uh, it's like kind of basic economics. I mean, revenues are actually going up and the spending is not as going up as quickly as uh, the revenues. And how are revenues going up if you're losing members? Well, for a lot of unions, you know, the, the dues are set at like a percentage of your pay rate. So for workers in the unionized sectors, the pay has been going up for, for you know, two decades. Um, so union dues are going to continue to go up, and that's more than made up for the loss of membership. Um, the other thing is that, so, you know, as the dues keep going up, um, the other thing is that there's, Unions get a lot of investment income from their large assets, so they get, you know, a lot from dividends and interest and rent, and that's been growing very rapidly as well. So basically, revenues are going rising faster than their spending, and in fact, the spending is below the inflation rate. Um, I mean, that's but that was before you know the sort of crazy inflation we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. And and that twenty nine point twenty nine point one billion dollars in net assets does not include the value of union pensions, which is trillions of dollars in assets. And and so you know the extent to which we we could or should be strategically investing those is is a conversation for another day. But this is just outside of, of the union pensions. Um, and one of the you know you mentioned that. As revenue is increasing, the expenditures are not increasing as fast. And to put numbers to that, organized labor employs 23,000 fewer employees in 2020 compared to 2010. Our members yeah. have decreased. Our assets have increased. But we have 20,000 fewer paid staff, which is which is pretty important. That's 20,000. I mean, you know, how many people does one person that is working full time uh, for a union, how many people could they be representing? How many people could they be organizing that? You know, I mean, if we say just 10 to one, that's a huge amount of people that are being left either without representation or without somebody to help them organize a new union. Uh, that That's, you know, that's a lot of yeah. people that that we don't have anymore. Yeah, and at, and at the same time, the the top level management officer occupations have have grown, have gone up. So you're getting a more kind of more top heavy um, looking kind of organized labor is getting more management officer heavy, and um, yeah, it's it's. It certainly was also, and I, I want to caution, I mean, it was a pretty gradual decline of 
staffers that really the pandemic really lost, you know, a lot of unions had, a, you know, had to lay off staff. Um, mm-hmm. um, so that accelerated uh, a process that was going on. Right, right. And the uh, and, and, you know, numbers numbers to that management positions, you say, have increased by 28 percent with more than 10,000 employees earning a gross salary over one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year. I mean, you know, like we can uh, one hundred twenty five thousand dollars is not it. You know, that's something that a lot of union workers could potentially expect to make at some point during their career. You know, it's not it's not like they're not millionaires. Right. But one hundred twenty five thousand dollars is, is is pretty good. <laughs> and and have ten thousand ten thousand people making that making over that. At the same time yeah. that we've cut twenty thousand jobs, it just it just seems like a, a just misplaced priorities. It, it like I don't I don't understand how how that gets justified. It's difficult for me to grok. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm gonna you know uh, that's the census. That's what the census data shows, and I, I think there are. You know, one of my explanations for what kind of happened to labor is, you know, in 2009, when when Obama was elected, we all thought labor law reform was happening. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, it was, it was a, I think there were 58 Democratic senators at that time or something close. So it wasn't quite filibuster proof, but like labor was really, this is, we're going to start you know, the AFL-CIO was passing resolutions, get your money together, get get ready to start organizing because we're passing this. And then we didn't, just kind of like what happened with the PRO Act. And I felt, I think like what the kind of um, defeatism uh, and letdown happened to a lot of the labor movement was like how, and, and, and a sort of determination that, you know what, you can't organize on scale with a broken labor law regime, which it is, it is broken. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we're seeing today is like, yeah, the labor law is horrible. And it's, it's obviously hindering some of the most exciting developments, you know, like at Starbucks. Um, but you can still organize and, and plus with the Biden NLRB, the agency that enforces labor law, you know, is you know, on a crusade in a way right. that I, you know, that you know, in, in the union I came out of Unite Here, we wouldn't even run elections because we felt it was just basically unfair and the employer had too much, um, too much power. So we would organize outside the board process. Um, but, but so, I mean, I think there is a bit of a, I, I hope there is a kind of change in attitude that you can't, that it you can still organize even under this very unfair laws uh, that favor employers over workers. Um, this is a, so I, I do. You know. Well, well, this is a bit of a side question, um, but I, I'm interested in, in, in you know the you mentioned that labor law reform did not happen under Obama. And labor law reform has not happened under Biden, and yet the terrain has trained, changed drastically just by uh, the NLRB beginning to enforce the laws that are on the books and, and what I have uh, tongue-in-cheekingly called law and order unionism, you know, at the NLRB. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, on it, why? Why did we not get that under Obama? I mean, obviously, this is a side question, but... 
What, 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 why did we not get that before? I mean, it's the same, you know, I, I think Obama was never fully on board with, you know, he had an alliance with labor. We thought we had a stronger partnership. He certainly delivered some, some, some benefits, uh, you know, uh, but, um, you know, it, it was the filibuster as well. And there was no, there was no push to really challenge the filibuster. It, 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 the, there wasn't even a, really a debate as much as it is today, where you're looking at a split Senate, 50, 50, you know, practically 50-50, that nothing's going to happen unless you confront the filibuster. So I think, and, and, and of course, there's so many uh, Democratic politicians who pay lip service to labor, but when it comes down to the to to the vote they're not there right. and i mean that's why i think some some of the some of the unions are pushing today that that you force a vote on the on the latest iteration of labor law reform just to make get people on the record right. you know even if you're not going to win that vote I, I i think that's a good idea but so um and and i, I think biden is just actually has more of a connection to the labor movement and is serious about it um mm -hmm. uh you know you know it's not perfect uh, but they're doing what they can with a split with a you know with a with a very narrow majority in the senate right which i think is a and it's not just the nlrb there's like you know all these labor provisions being attached to legislation mm -hmm. it, it's just it's it's that are really going to help um some sectors of unions grow i think more on the construction side you know, I don't think service workers have gotten their part yet. That was in the original Build Back Better bill. Would have, you know, I think was more in the service sector unions. But overall, like this, this even without fundamental labor law reform, the terrain is just so, 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 um, so much better than it was over a decade ago. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think that's... Um... You know, an important thing to look at is that even though we haven't had the significant labor law reform and, you know, we've been waiting all this time for it, like you said, the train has changed and labor is growing. Um, our popularity with the public is growing. Our success rate uh, in NLRB elections is growing. Uh, we're seeing new shops, new industries. So all those things point to there, there's clearly some momentum here, and that's before labor has really invested uh, in the way that it could. So I think that's something that I'm thinking about. You know, when I when I look at your report, um, okay, if we're doing all this right now on you know like a shoestring budget comparatively, how much better could we be doing uh, with some significant investment here? Because based on your reporting. There's room for investment, um, you know, and I think, I think, you know, there's no better time than now. Um, and so the idea of just being conservative with your assets, uh, I, I could see where maybe that made sense in certain times and places for certain unions. But to me, it seems like if ever there was a time to, to go all in, Maybe not a hundred percent all in, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to be good stewards of your members' dues dollars and you know, protect the long-term viability of your organization. 
obviously. But, you know, if ever there was a time to, to, to go in and, and really increase investment into new organizing, to hiring new staff to organize, to uh, funding solidarity funds and strike funds, um, you know, I think we've got, what, 90 Starbucks organizers have been terminated at least you know i think every union in, in the country should be jumping up to to help mm -hmm. uh make those folks whole while they wait on a decision uh and and we've seen some of that you know we've seen some of the uh amazing support that our brothers and sisters down in brookwood ha have had over the course of this you know over 500 day strike at warrior met coal the ufcw uh, donated there's room for more the UFCW's donated four hundred thousand dollars to their strike fund. Yeah, that's um, that's fantastic, and like that's that's what I hope to see, and then I hope this report is generating these conversations about, you know, just exactly what do we have in terms of resources, and where could we spend more, mm -hmm. uh, and then you know, of course, that gets into the question of what what's the most effective use of this new you know uh, influx of funding, uh, and there's you know, we could all come up with our wish list, but I would say whatever they would spend it on, as long as it's related to adding and growing mm. the labor movement, that's better than just sitting, you know, sitting idle. And Chris, you, yeah. you, you created a, a little bit of a wish list. So what, what was your, <laughs> you know, um, we, we make you king of the unions. Uh, what, what is it that you do? <laughs> oh, I've, I've already been accused of seeking that, uh, uh, position so so i i don't i don't i don't think it should be some top down we make you democratically right. king of the unions we, yeah, yeah right a rank and file movement has yeah. uh appointed <laughs> you our chief spokesman and delegate what's the wish I mean, list <laughs> i mean i mean this is yeah i mean i i'm uh it's if you go back to 1997 when you had the first AFL-CIO contested election, John Sweeney won that, and it was a big debate about what should be happening. And one of the things Sweeney really put forward was uh, not only like an ambitious goal, I think it was like a million or two million a year in in new organizing, but he really wanted and pushed and publicly shamed uh, unions that weren't spending 30 percent of their budgets on organizing. And there are, of course, unions that are doing that now, and up to 50%, but there's just not enough. Um, and that's reflected in in my data, which you know doesn't look at individual unions. It looks at you know the whole labor movement as a whole. But so yeah, in the report, I kind of I, I you know I call it like a thought experiment because all this stuff has to has to go through the democratic procedures of the union. But just like you know, I I read a lot uh, about what people were advocating, and you know, and 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 you know, you could hire twenty thousand new organizers. Apart from the practicality, that would cost a billion. Okay, you could you know a lot of you could fund these sort of alternative labor organizations and the independent unions that are starting up um, at far significant higher rates if they want it. And I think at some point. As these independent unions mature, and 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 like some of the fights that are going to happen, there might be strikes. There might there will probably have to be strikes to settle things at Starbucks and Amazon, because the union because the company is going to try to play it out for years if they can. So mm -hmm. it's it's going to be incumbent on the entire labor movement to make sure these 
organizations are resourced to take the kind of actions that really uh, inflict some pain on the companies that bring them to the table. So, you know, it's activities like that. I think, you know, the strike activity has been low over the last decade, even though there's, you know, really large strike funds. Um, and striking is not just, uh, a, you know, a defensive, uh, you know, like you're trying to get your best contract or you're trying to fight off management uh, proposals that are trying to take back benefits you got. Strikes are also ways to organize. You, ways to organize internally, but also your demands can include, you know, organizing rights at, 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 at subcontractors or organizing rights at new places that open up. I mean, that was one of the strategies that I think the organizing, many of the organizing unions use collective bargaining as a process, not only to address the contract, but also to say, tell the company that you're, you know, we're going to grow with you and you're going to, not fight us in the way uh, labor law allows. If you open a new casino or a new hotel or a new facility or a new auto auto part uh, factory. So, and then, you know, I think at some point, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll, some of the more militant voices are saying, you know, we just need to violate, um, you know, unjust labor laws and things like secondary boycotts and, um, you know, crazy court injunctions against you can only have two people at a picket line or something like that, you know, violating that is like a huge liability for the union. But at some point, um, you know, that might be necessary. And, you know, it's scary. But um, at some point, I think civil disobedience on a large scale against these unjust labor laws, it's a type of spending, you know, mm -hmm. it's like a it's a type of spending. And I think this, you know, when that moment arises, and I think it will, um, uh, I hope the, you know, the, the big unions step up and they, and they, yeah, so I'll leave it. Yeah. Well, the, well, the bosses see breaking the law and the fines that they get for that as a cost of doing business. I mean, I don't know if they've got like an expense report for, you know, but, but effectively, wh whether they've got it in writing or not, we can tell by their actions that they obviously know in all of these campaigns that they're breaking the law. They know that. They have to know that. There's no way that they don't know that. And maybe they get fined. Maybe they don't. Um, most of the time, they're, they're not going to get fined in, in relation to labor law uh, or, or by the NLRB. But, but um, you know, OSHA violations, right? These are things that is just the cost of doing business. And because the law is so lopsided, you know, the fines are going to be worse on the workers, but but we should, there's no moral reason like not to break a, an unjust law. It's just, what is it, just looking at the cost, what is it going to cost us? Is, is, is this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And that's a question that, that I think that we should, like you said, we should be, we should be more receptive to, to being willing to have to have the because the conversation is just not happening now by and large except for a very 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 few of the more militant voices um there's not a widespread a wide-scale debate going on in the labor movement about like when should we start breaking the law what laws should we start breaking how much is that going to cost stuff like that it's just not happening it might be you know the one of the things about labor is it's very opaque um i don't think i can write this report if I was 
on staff and labor uh, <laughs> wouldn't be a good career move. But as a uh, former staffer, I can <laughs> say absolutely you could not. Have, <laughs> you could have written it. Get it published. So, different story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, I suspect there's, you know, there are some very smart, committed people in in the labor movement who, uh, who I suspect are having internal conversations about this um, and thinking of ways because I, I think, you know. There are a lot of um, committed voices that have been are, are been waiting for this moment. That I think there's discussions going on. They're just not gonna right okay. have them in the pub, in public yeah. sphere. Yeah, I, but but I don't know. I hope. <laughs> I hope. Right. Well, That's and I would enough. just add that uh, there there could be people listening right now who can facilitate these conversations and start asking these questions and having these conversations, you know, among uh, your own membership uh, at your own local uh, and go from there. Um, but I, I really, you know, just wanted to to echo those sentiments. And, and I, I think the thought experiments are very useful um, in terms of being willing to break the law and the costs associated with that. Um, the idea of investing in a significant amount of new organizers. And I do like that you also put it out there about kind of alternative labor formations. Um, you know, there are entire sectors of the American working class that are unorganized uh, or that in some cases fall outside of traditional labor law. You know, we've got domestic workers and gig workers. And then I think we Farm also, workers. yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we need to also be looking at uh, in terms of alternative formations, I'd love to see organized labor get more involved with the worker co-op movement. Um, and even if it's just starting small with a handful of grants here and there, um, I think that's an opportunity. Because if the big picture is, how do we shift the balance of power back to working people? Well, that is that is a technique, right? And we've even had people uh, write into the show asking like, Hey, if I'm at a small place, like what's better? Should I try to make it a co-op or should I try to unionize it? And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or. I think these movements have to work in conjunction with each other. And, you know, there are brilliant people out there already doing brilliant work around co-ops and labor has resources that those folks could, you know, could certainly benefit from. So that's one thing that I also hope comes from this report is more dialogue between those two efforts. Well, we could do a whole show on the worker ownership. That's I didn't put anything in there in that because I, I uh, that's a whole different kind of report. I, I, I think I think um, that is the way to go. I mean, I think the largest, I mean, one one plank, but like one of the largest worker co-ops is SEIU's uh, home care workers, uh, and uh, I think it's in Boston or New York. Uh, and I know the steel workers set up a partnership with the famous Spanish. The Basque, uh, Mondragon. Yeah. So there's like interest in sectors of the labor. The movement. machinists and, have a know, lobster. I, I, uh, the the machinists have a lobster fishery up in Maine. I did. Th that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that stuff is so exciting because it structurally addresses the inequality by mm -hmm. really broadly distributing equity. And um, I would love to see you know labor do that. I mean there was a period in the 80s and 90s in the airlines and steel where there was a lot of worker buyouts, but they weren't, um, you know, they were really distressed industries and, you know, the governance of them really didn't 
put for you know really advanced like uh, uh, a sort of active militant involvement of the owners I mean the worker owners but there's a lot that, yeah, there's a lot to explore there and I, I think it's super fertile area um, to go yeah I'm even thinking like right of first refusal as something that you know labor can be advocating for while at the same time you know have some resources to put behind it you know should mm-hmm. they be successful yeah I mean I think it, I, I mean it's, I think in the private sector there should we should we should be starting you know people should have a campaign to never sign another contract without that in the thing right you know that that should be and and it's super there's just no reason for the boss not to put that in you know it's just super common sense to say that the people who do the work if you're going to try to change something super drastically you're going to try to go bankrupt or sell it to somebody you should let the workers own buy it first um or you should give them the shot um but chris i wanted to you know i i want to be um respectful of your time and i appreciate i appreciate you um hanging around and and being willing to talk to us but i did want to make sure that that i asked you your what your thoughts are you mentioned you know you alluded to some of the critiques that you've gotten about it and and one of them is friend of the show we've been been uh um Connor Lewis, we've had him on multiple times. Very and 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 of course, you know, I think you know that it was done in, in like a comradely and brotherly way, right? But but he took issue with some of the way that that your 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 methodology in the report. He says um, Boner applies general corporate financial principles when application of nonprofit financial principles would be more appropriate. And um, I'm not. I don't really know what the difference is between corporate and nonprofit financial principles. I'm assuming that you do. So could you tell us what what is his what is his critique there and what does that do to the viability of your report in your in your mind? Um, yeah, I, and I, I, I'm working on my reply. Uh, OK, OK, because he raised, he, he raised some he raised some good points um, uh, and, and and certainly some might disagree with. But. If I, I think if I am characterizing his argument is, um, you know, union assets are not just available for use. You know, they're restricted. Some are in strike funds, some are in other funds. And if you look at a budget of a union or a nonprofit, you're going to see like the XYZ fund, the strike fund, the organizing fund, the training fund. And so essentially, you know, he's saying, I, I, I think, is that treating all of these assets as available for use for, for deploying for alternative kind of uh, projects is, is, you know, you need to look at what's restricted and what's unrestricted. And, um, you know, strike funds being the biggest category. Um, and, you know, I think strike funds are really, you know, uh, interesting entry point into that. Because a lot of a lot of assets are in strike funds, but where I think I disagree um, with Connor is these funds are also there's a lot of democratic governance mechanisms that say we can use part of our strike fund for organizing if if, if we if we need to we you know it's up to an elected executive board to shift assets in and out they're far more fungible than I think uh, he portrayed them. And I know, like, when I worked at Unite Here, we had a strike fund. But then sometimes when our contracts weren't up for four years, we're like, we need assets for organizing. And it was a 
the executive board voted on shifting, I'm making it up, $10 million to organizing. And then when we got closer, we, you know, uh, to the contract. So they're, you know, they're, they move in and out. And I think that's a democratic process. And they're not just, you know, written in stone. Um, but the strike funds are probably the most significant restriction on the on the assets. Um, so I think I think that's you know what he was getting at there. Um, and I certainly acknowledge strike funds are like a, probably the biggest restricted assets out there. But the other thing I you know I think that I pointed out right before is that you know they're twenty nine billion in in assets, but there's only been like on average, $70 million a year in strike benefits, less than 1%. So if these assets are in strike funds, well, they're not being spent. So I'd say like they're not being spent and nor is it rating or an impermissible democratic maneuver to shift some of your assets to organizing out of a strike fund. Most of the unions have provisions for that. Um, right, right. And I I think that makes sense. Um and and that is a reply to one of the things that he said, but but I but I think that was I saw that critique in his in his report, and I and I basically kind of had the same thoughts that you did. I was like, I'm not I'm not too convinced of you know the degree to which you think that these this spending is is set in stone. Um, but he, he in in one part of it, he's basically making the argument that and and may and it could be that that I'm I'm just not it it's gone over my head and and you addressed it but um he's making the argument that basically you're overestimating the um the total amount available like in all of this and and so quote boner applies general corporate financial principles what does that mean what corporate financial principles when application of nonprofit financial principles would be more appropriate uh, taking nonprofit accounting principles, the true excess is unrestricted funds available beyond a defense interval. So is he just so is is then he saying that the you shouldn't be counting restricted funds, quote unquote, at all in your in your analysis? Or is there something is there something else that I'm missing about the corporate versus the nonprofit financial principles? Well, I, I yeah, I, I think of that and I. I, I... It's just the nature of the information you get from the Department of Labor. Um, and I'm just using, like, if you look at a nonprofit's financial statements filed with the IRS, I mean, they have a income statement and a balance sheet, and that's basically what I did here. And that's what I, 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 think, I think the minutiae of, like, accounting uh, probably, <laughs> probably lose some viewers, but, but I take the point that saying, like, not all the 29 billion of net assets are available, like just sitting in the bank, although a lot they are sitting in the bank. They're dedicated to, to different uses. Um, and whether it be a strike fund or a training fund. And that's if you get into a union's budget and you get access to the document, which a lot of times you can't, even if you're a member, you'll see we got X amount of assets in the strike fund, X amount of funds in the solidarity fund, X amount of. So, you know, I, I, I take the point that not all the assets are available to be used. I would argue that just because something's been put in an accounting category doesn't mean it's not subject to democratic control, worker control. Workers, through their 
you know, through the democratic government can shift assets where, I mean, it's the workers' assets. They can like, just because they put it in some sort of accounting, you know, budget thing doesn't mean you can't change it. Um, right. I mean, that's what democracy is kind of about at the, you know, in the, in the labor movement It's like, you know, setting the budget and, you know, through it and there's debates and there's often those debates lead, not often, but occasionally can lead to, you know, factions challenging the leadership and that's healthy. I mean, I think that's part. So I think, I think that addressed that point. Okay. Um, uh, there was Chris, some other, I know he has a lot of, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's that. I, I just, I appreciate your time. Um, I think the report is fascinating. I appreciate your, uh, your, um, tentative reply here to, to, uh, Connor. And I look forward to a more fleshed out response. I think, uh, I'll, I'll definitely be reading that. Uh, I'm sure Connor will as well. Uh, Adam, is there anything else that you wanted to ask him before we, uh, let him go? I, I just wanted to say thank you, Chris, for, for, pulling all this information together. Um, I know it couldn't have been too easy to do that, to find it all and then to compile <laughs> it as a report that has now, you know, spread around kind of the, the labor press. Um, and, and I hope that it just facilitates more and more of these kind of conversations uh, to, to think about what assets we have, what resources are available and, and how we could be, you know, maybe more strategic in using those resources. So, yeah. Uh, thanks again, Chris. And, and thanks for being willing to spend some time on a Labor Day weekend Saturday. Yeah, with us. perfect. Uh, um, really enjoy it. It was great to be in the show. And I, I listened to the Labor 101 and that I think that kind of labor education is amazing. And, and to give my little final thing on that is that most unions, you know, you can find your financial report at the Department of Labor's uh, website if if it's if you have some private sector union. So I mean, hopefully this will also be a tool for um, activists within their union to understand a little bit better about where the money's going. And and that, that's, I think, a Labor 101 tool as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Connor, uh, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate <laughs> your time. And, um, and, and yeah, hope you have a good weekend. Stay safe. All right. Great to talk to you. All right. All right, folks. That is it. That's that. That's it. We had we we went we went a little long, uh, but I think it was worth it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad I, I powered through. I had the stamina. Um, yeah. th- I could not have done this on Thursday, but uh, you know, feeling 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 up to it. Was able for to do a marathon Zoom today. I hope folks got a lot out of it. Uh, I know I did. And uh, I'm really hoping that, you know, these segments are things that all of us can share with folks, you know, in the days and months and maybe even years ahead uh, as we all try to build the labor movement, revive labor um, as a force to be reckoned with in this country. So, yeah, I just I, it was an honor to have so many cool people on on today. Um, really appreciate everyone who tuned in, everyone who liked, everyone who shared. Um, you know, I think I want to take this final moment just to encourage folks, uh, whatever you can do to support the Valley Labor Report, we really appreciate it. Um, this is a shoestring budget. Jacob and I don't take any salaries uh, from this project. And um you know, we want it to be sustainable. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we want it to spread and to, and to reach workers who, who need to hear news and analysis for, by, and of working class people. And, um, you know, so whatever that looks like for you in terms of support, if you're able to be a recurring donor, that's fantastic. Even if it's, you know, three bucks a month, if you're able to do a one-time contribution, that's really appreciated. Uh, if you can't afford to do any kind of donations, but chances are you can help us spread the word. You can, uh, you know, little things like giving us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choice. Um, it, go on Facebook and invite your friends to like our page. Uh, share the videos uh, on YouTube uh, and like those videos. Um, I know some of y'all will are good about just commenting on our clips just to, you know, boost the engagement. Those little things like that really do make a big difference because, you know, we don't have the funds to uh, to generate an audience, right? We, we've got to be pretty organic in our growth. Um, so, you know, with it being Labor Day weekend, really just wanted to, to plug that and push for any kind of support folks can give us because uh, we want to keep doing this and, you know, we think it's valuable. Uh, and, and certainly I think some of y'all do as well, or you, or you wouldn't tune in every week. Um, yeah. but the key I think is to just like growing our unions, you know, growing this audience, if each one can reach one, uh, and keep that going, um, you know, we'll be in a really good place and hopefully we'll be here next Labor Day and do it all over again. Yep. Yep. I appreciate it. And uh, for folks listening on the podcast who aren't seeing the chat, the link to donate is tvlr.fm slash donate. If you want to kick in a couple bucks, a couple bucks once a month uh, to keep the show on the air, we would really appreciate it. And if you want to get your local to sponsor the show, then, like I said, reach out to me. Um, You can do that on our website, tvlr.fm slash contact. And uh, till next week, then... We'll see you later. All power to the workers. <laughs> <laughs>